Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're back in our studio in D.C. today after two weeks on the road, taping in our regular Thursday time slot a little after 1030 on June 28th. As they say in the business, news happens fast here in Washington, particularly this week, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. Margot Sanger-Katz, The New York Times. Good morning. And Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Hello. And today marks our first anniversary. You are listening to episode 52. So happy birthday to us. And we'll have some thoughts about the year gone by at the end of today's podcast. But first, the news. I thought we would spend this week on all the little things that happened while we were in California and Colorado. But obviously, the biggest news of the week and probably the biggest news of 2018 so far is the retirement announcement by Supreme Court Associate Justice Anthony Kennedy. You know, for all the fighting over the seat vacated by the death of Justice Scalia in 2016, his replacement, Neil Gorsuch, didn't really change the balance of power on the court. It was a conservative replacing a conservative. But Kennedy is and has been for decades the swing vote on a long list of issues. It is not overstating things to say he is single-handedly responsible for the current continuation of abortion rights under the Roe v. Wade decision. He was the deciding vote to challenges in both 1992 and 2016 to prevent its overturn. So what happens now? Well, I think all eyes are on the Senate. I think that obviously um, with the 5149 majority in the Senate, then obviously the um, nominee only needs 51 votes. John McCain is not probably going to be there. We'll see if he travels. Um, And yesterday, Susan Collins was talking about this. She was asked if she wanted to see a moderate. And she sort of said, well, I prefer to have a moderate. But then she went on to talk about all the reasons why she could support somebody who wasn't a moderate, somebody who had integrity and things like that. Um, One of the people who's been put up as a suggestion to replace him is Brett Kavanaugh. And um, uh, he's a clerk. He's a former clerk of um, Justice Kennedy. His name was put on the list. He is a judge now. He's not just a former judge. Yes, he's a circuit court judge in D.C. Um, And he was put on the list that President Trump has put forward as possible replacements last November. There was kind of a suggestion that maybe Justice Kennedy might be a little bit more supportive and interested in retiring if if his name was on the list. Um, He worked for the Bush administration he um, has been he's taken very conservative positions recently, including one in an abortion case last year involving an illegal immigrant who wanted to get an abortion. Um, so which we'll talk about it a little bit yes. further into the podcast. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski both voted for Kavanaugh back when he was nominated. It took him a long time to to be approved for his current position. Um, took three years, in fact. But he um, they did support him. And there are also three Democrats in the Senate who voted for Neil Gorsuch. So I, I think, you know, now that the nominee only needs 51 votes, then it's very hard to see how the Democrats 
can prevail in their in their opposition. Although I mean, people are saying, you know, this is this is the threshold. This is this is as I said, it is not overstating to say that Roe v. Wade is absolutely on the line. I mean, Kennedy was the fifth vote to preserve it. Um, in that sense, you know, what happens when Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who both tout themselves as being in support of abortion rights, are you know basically looking at effectively voting. The, the president has said that he only will appoint justices who are who have promised to overturn Roe v. Wade. So this really puts them in a, a very, it shines a very bright spotlight on them. I mean, it, it's going to be a tense battle. I'm sure their offices are already being inundated with uh, calls and calls to oppose or support the justice that, that President Trump nominates. Um, there's also the fight going on right now on the Democratic side of if and how to push back. Um, obviously, uh, they're not in the same position that Republicans were in uh, a few years ago when they held open a seat for months in order to get a, a better, in their minds, uh, appointee. And they've also changed the rules. I mean, there have yes. been, you know, it, it used to be traditionally um, there was a 60 vote threshold to um, confirm a Supreme Court justice. And, you know, the Republicans say the Democrats started it when Harry Reid, you know, lowered the threshold for non-Supreme Court justices. But then Mitch McConnell, in addition to 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 disallowing basically President Obama's uh, nominee to, to even have a hearing um, when Donald Trump was elected, then said, and by the way, we're going to change the rules. And so now you only need 51 votes. Right. And Democrats are trying to now say, oh, well, McConnell said before that you shouldn't have this confirmation happen in an election year until the people have a chance to weigh in and have their say and decide who is in the Senate um, making those confirmation votes. Um, And of course, Republicans are countering, no, 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 we said in a presidential election year, not in any election year. Um, But I mean, it's it's also just raw politics and power, and Republicans have the majority, and they're going to use it, and Democrats don't. <laughs> so, so what are the politics here? I mean, there's you know, there's an argument that this brings that this will bring out Republicans um, this fall, that this will you know stir up the base. But I would think there's also an argument that this will bring out Democrats who suddenly realize how important all of this is. My guess is that this debate about the future of the Supreme Court is going to be really galvanizing to both sides because so there are just so many issues that both sides care about a lot. And I think abortion is actually perhaps like the best example of this where, you know, that's the kind of issue where it's not like one side's really excited about it and the other one isn't. I think both are very excited. Republicans historically have used the Supreme Court as a really effective rallying tool because Uh, You know, historically, it's been this terrible court that's been, you know, overturning all of our laws, this judicial activism. And now, finally, they actually have a court that is more in line with their policy preferences and their legal preferences, and they want to preserve it. I think it will help Republicans turn out their voters uh, to know that they can replace Kennedy with potentially someone who is more on their side. But of course, I think, you know, you can already see from yesterday that Democrats are very exercised about this. And they feel, you know, the argument that you hear from Democrats is that this is why elections matter. And, you know, the reason why President Trump has the ability to replace two justices on the Supreme Court is because he won the election and the Republicans won the election in the Senate. And so they really do get to make this choice. And if Democrats want to shape the future of the court, they're going to need to wrest power back from the Republicans. Now, I think, oh, I think once um, the Republican nominee is on the Supreme Court, I think we will see cases move forward to chip away at abortion. And interestingly, I was looking at a Gallup poll. Um, 50% of Americans support abortion in some cases, not all cases, 
and 29% support abortion in all cases, and then 18% don't support abortion. So, and that dynamic has been changing a little bit because 10 years ago, it was more like 60% of Americans uh, supported abortion in some cases. Gallup did point out that over a very long time, public opinion on abortion has changed much less than it's changed on things like gay marriage. Oh, or, gay marriage I mean, is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been... It, Yes, it, it, it goes up and down, but it's been pretty consistent, which is that a majority um, supports some abortion rights. Basically, it's a, the, 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 the number of people who support, you know, who want abortion banned in all cases is very small. They're just very active and very vocal. Absolutely. It, and I, I think that speaks to the ongoing stigma. And I think that's why a lot of abortion rights um, activists want to model what really moved the needle on gay marriage, which was people coming out to the people they know. And so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, actions around trying to encourage people who have had abortions, which we know is nearly a third of, of all women, um, to be more open about that and to speak to the people we know they know. I think another important difference between abortion and an issue like gay rights is that you just don't see generational differences, that it looks like, you know, the majority, the small majority that support abortion rights, it kind of cuts across almost every age demographic. And so you really are seeing a difference on the basis of religion, of political preference, of kind of cultural or regional preference. But it's not, you know, with gay rights, I think really young people led the way in sort of changing public views of this. You saw older people were very uncomfortable with gay rights. Young people were very comfortable with it. And eventually the whole country sort of caught up with the young people. This is one that generation after generation, you see the same sort of divides. Before we leave the Supreme Court, it's not just abortion that, that's, you know, on the on the table here. You know, one would think that that some of these Affordable Care Act cases, if there's a really, you know, more solid, they're, they're basically what, what we're looking at is it'll be a six to three uh, conservative majority, pretty much no matter who the President Trump nominates, assuming that that person is, uh, is confirmed. Um, you know, things that people have been rolling their that this attorney general's case, you know, charging that getting rid of the individual mandate penalty meant that the whole law was um, uh, was unconstitutional. But I'm wondering if you know people are going to look at some of some of the the health care cases too that that well, might also be now. also in our wheelhouse. You know, this uh, legal challenge to Medicaid work requirements that's at the very earliest stages of litigation. But I think this is a pretty high stakes case for the future of the Medicaid program. Certainly for the Trump administration and its allies that really want to reshape the Medicaid program. You know, this is very much a legal question. It's not a constitutional question, but I think it's reasonable to expect there are lots of states that want to do it in different parts of the country that the Supreme Court will render the final word on this. <laughs> and a different court may end up with a different answer to this question. Yeah, I, mean, I think in the Kentucky case, we're waiting for a ruling any minute now. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to say, you know, there's so many things that you kind of look at and you roll your eyes and you say, well, I know that the Supreme Court would never let that happen. Well, that's not necessarily going to be true anymore. I think also this is not the last example of a place in which the Trump administration is going to push the boundaries of what is legally permissible. I think they've shown across a number of different areas of law that they're really looking for what is allowed. And perhaps they will feel emboldened with a different court to kind of test further. And I think they're already feeling emboldened, especially after the travel ban ruling this week, um, really, especially, you know, in, in the realm of immigration and national security. That was just a big green light to say, you know, the, the president has very broad powers in this arena and courts are not really willing to step in. No, and you see it in the states, too. I mean, a lot of these abortion bans, you know, a lot of states, the, the uh, opponents would say, you know, 
you're not we know that this is unconstitutional and you're going to make the state taxpayers bear the costs of this lawsuit. In fact, in a couple of cases, they've actually gotten outside groups to bear the cost of the lawsuit because of that, you know, for some of these challenges. So I think states who have not done things that they might otherwise have done will now start doing them. There's also interesting, especially on abortion, I think there are some interesting questions about what kinds of cases get brought and how much we start to see disparate effects in the states. You know, the advocates for abortion rights are always trying to make a decision about is this a case that we want to go to the Supreme Court? How do we think the Supreme Court will rule on this question? And if they start to feel that the Supreme Court is more likely to overturn Roe v. Wade, they may decide not to litigate on some of these cases that are pushing the boundaries of what would currently be allowed. And so what that may mean is that laws will stay in place in certain states that wouldn't have stayed in place in the past. Because they don't want to set a bad precedent. Right. And that's very true. I mean, that's why they haven't pursued a lot of the 20-week abortion bans, because they were afraid that, that Kennedy would not <laughs> – Kennedy would uphold those. And so actually a lot of those have not been pursued. Um, in fact, I think almost all of them have not been pursued up to the Supreme just, Court. Just one more thing about abortion, which is the Supreme Court is really important. The Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade set a standard that there's a constitutional right to abortion in certain cases – um, but, you know, abortion is also a political issue. And so if the Supreme Court did overrule Roe v. Wade, that does not mean that abortion would no longer be legal everywhere. You know, Although quite it, would the contrary. Be, it would mean that abortion would be illegal in a lot of places because yeah, they have automatic laws. So there yeah. are states that already have laws on the books that would make abortion illegal. There certainly are states that have begun passing or might pass more laws that would make abortion more difficult or more limited in its access. But I think we would have a different conversation in those states politically. I think some of these laws are more symbolic than they are real. And I'm not saying that those state legislatures in those states would not still ban abortion, but I think they would have to make the case in a different way to their voters and constituents than they do now when it's more symbolic. It's more a way of stating their principles and their objection to abortion, but they know that abortion will still remain available. It's a good point. There are 18 states, I think, that Guttmacher um, tallied as having laws that were that would uh, chip away at abortion rights, but 10 of them were from before Roe v. Pre-Roe, Wade. Yeah. So, and then there are eight states that... That, um, d- that move towards protecting abortion rights. Although, I mean, there are those who argue, you know, that Roe v. Wade short-circuited what was already a political, you know, uh, process that was going on in individual states, that all it would do is say that, you know, in states that whose, whose citizens wish to have abortion remain legal, they can do that. And in states that wish to make it illegal, they could do that, um, which is presumably what would happen anyway. It might, uh, you know, we will have to see about how it would, you know, change the, the political process. Well, before we get too far afield of that, um, before uh, Justice Kennedy announced his retirement this week, the biggest health news out of the Supreme Court was the uh, ruling striking down a California law that sought to require crisis pregnancy centers to inform women that they don't offer abortion and other reproductive services. First, somebody explain what crisis pregnancy centers are, Alice. Sure. Talk about my home state, California. Um, well, these are centers that are uh, generally very religiously affiliated, and they are providing services to pregnant women and their main goal that they're very open about is discouraging women from seeking an abortion. And the California law required them to post information in their facilities that informed women about their legal right to seek an abortion and where they could do so. Um, And the groups challenged that, saying that the state was compelling them to uh, speak in a way that they disagreed with. And so it became a free speech case. And the Supreme Court agreed with the crisis pregnancy centers and said, you do not have to provide this information. Now, the state of California and uh, 
women's health advocates say that this is leading to misleading women, not informing them of their options, not informing them that they have this right to And these places do sometimes advertise, you know, sort of su- suggest. Yes. Yeah, they, they strongly suggest that you can come there and get an abortion right. to get you to come there. Right, 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 right. But once you're there, they... they uh, discourage that. Yes, rather in, in rather strong terms. Yes. Uh, you know, I was intrigued by the ruling. I wasn't that surprised by it. But, you know, back in 1991, when I first started covering abortion, there was another free speech case about abortion, about the original, you know, what they called the gag rule that said that doctors could not um, mention the word abortion or refer for abortion uh, for women with unintended pregnancies. And that was also a free speech case and the justices ruled the other way. So, Margot, I think some people were suggesting that that maybe this latest case can be used to sort of turn around and, and you know, talk and the other side can argue about compelled speech. Yeah, I mean, I am not a First Amendment expert, and I don't want to pretend to be one on a podcast, but I did see some arguments made by people who are more expert in the law than me that suggested that this same kind of logic could be used to dislodge requirements that abortion providers provide certain information to people before they give them abortion. So so certain states require them to tell them various things, to show them their ultrasound, to describe the development of the fetus, and in some cases to provide provide information that is not factually accurate about the risks of breast cancer and other things that are uh, evidence does not show that those are associated with abortions. But state legislators have decided that women should still be told that. And so I do wonder if there will be a case or cases that start to question some of those requirements and on the same grounds. Now, as we just discussed, it will be a different Supreme Court. But I do think that even a new Supreme Court is probably going to have this you know, relatively broad view of the First Amendment. I was a little surprised by another part of that uh, decision where unlicensed centers were required by the California state law to to disclose to women that they were not licensed and they did not have medical staff on board. And you would think that that would, because of the, the standards that apply in this case, you would think that that would have been allowed. And the Trump administration um, was not on the side that, that Clarence Thomas ultimately was. Who wrote the decision. Who wrote the decision. And so it was just an interesting component of it because it seemed as if the court was going out of its way to side with the pro-life. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's worth we're pointing out that there were sort of two pieces to this law. Though there are there are crisis pregnancy centers that have some medical personnel. They do pregnancy tests, they do ultrasounds, and then there are some who don't have any medical personnel. They're not licensed because they're not providing medical services. But it, this was just a requirement that they post a, a sign that says we're not we don't provide medical services. Um, and even that part got struck down. Right. So we will we will have to see where, where that moves on to. Well, let's talk about politics for a minute. Um, we had a bunch of primaries this week. The The big news was this time on the Democratic side in New York. The fourth ranking House Democrat, Joe Crowley, was upset by a 28-year-old socialist named Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Meanwhile, in Maryland, the former head of the NAACP, Ben Jealous, who appeared at rallies with Bernie Sanders, beat back five other Democrats to win the nomination to take on Republican Governor Larry Hogan. Uh, both of them ran on platforms that included single-payer health care, along with higher minimum wage and free public college. Um, you know, the, to the extent we've talked about the, the primaries this year, we've talked about the fact that the sort of single-payer types weren't necessarily doing very well. But here we had a week where they really did. Does, do we think that the tenor is changing or was this just sort of a quirk of New York and Maryland? 
I think that the Democratic leadership has a mixed message now coming out of this. They're both saying this is a very district-specific outcome. This doesn't have broader implications for where the party's going or if uh, other sort of more moderate senior leadership is going to topple as well. Um, Of course, they they would be saying that. (laughs) But I, I think at the same time, they are coming out and saying that, you know, everything with healthcare is on the table. Um, at Pelosi at her conference this week in response to the um, the New York results said, sure, everything's in discussion in terms of healthcare, even this Medicare for all uh, model. And so I think that that is a big shift from a few years ago, that they're seeing that a good portion of the base is revved up by by these ideas, and they're at least willing to entertain them. We'll see how far that goes. <laughs> so, 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 think, oh, sorry. Okay. Sorry. I do think the energy is, um, in some races, behind the Bernie Sanders crowd. They've won about half of the primaries in which they've had a candidate that they endorsed. One thing that's interesting is that they haven't endorsed some people who actually support their position, such as Kara Eastland. Um, But one thing to remember about the Crowley race is that it was a very low turnout race. It was only 13 percent turnout. I don't know how large a lesson you can draw from that. Also very changing demographic for that district. So, I mean, he was. And different boundaries, too. It's been redrawn fairly recently. I do think the Democrats are very focused on health care is their issue. Uh, we had an economist poll that came out recently where um, health care was the the issue that got the most votes in terms of priority. Sixty nine percent of people said that they think it's a big issue. Um, I think that some of the ads that have been shown recently are really interesting um, in John Faso's district in New York, New York 19. Uh, this woman who was who had disabilities and a brain tumor confronted him and asked him to support her right to get health care through the exchanges. And they have this clip of him hugging her and promising that he would do that. And then they cut to the vote where he supported repealing Obamacare. And, and he's a Republican. Yes, he's a Republican. And so I think I think that there's a lot of focus on making this a big issue. And you'll see this play out in a lot of races. I just wanted to add a little bit of context, which is that, I mean, first of all, I think it's important not to overinterpret the results of any one election. There are a lot of congressional elections. There's lots of weirdness about individual districts and primaries do tend to be low turnout. So you kind of want to look across the country at what's happening instead of in any one race, even though, of course, when someone in leadership gets knocked out, that kind of is just it's just sort of catnip for uh, broader analysis. But what I was going to say about single payer is that you can actually see that the Congress has already shifted on this, the existing Congress. You know, uh, there are these single payer bills that have been introduced, you know, year after year after year. In this Congress, we saw the majority of House Democrats co-sponsoring a single payer bill for the first time. It was a very small percentage the last time. And, you know, Bernie Sanders has his big single payer bill in the Senate. He introduced it a few years ago. Almost no one signed on. And now we see like a really solid chunk of like 20 members, 20 20 Democrats. And there are 20 influential members. You know, uh, several are talked about as presidential hopefuls. So I don't think it means that single payer is the kind of, you know, de facto position of the Democratic Party. And, you know, as we've discussed before, and I think we'll continue to discuss over the next few years, I think there is going to be some debate about exactly what it is that the Democrats want to do on health care, how far to the left they want to go. But 
I think that the there's there's a changing sentiment in the party that has already begun, and some of these primaries I think reflect. And you know, we're definitely going to see the party moving left on health care. Oh, I was saying a little plug for last week's podcast with the two Western Democratic governors. If you haven't listened to it, they had some fairly interesting things to say about you know Democrats and health care and and the the ongoing debate. Rebecca, did you want to add something? I think uh, I think Margaret's right. I think it's a safer position now to be in favor of single payer than maybe a few years ago. But I think also realistically, I think the chances of moving forward on this anytime in the near future obviously are not very high. And even within states that can use waivers to experiment, we saw Vermont try to move forward on single payer, and even there, it wasn't able. They weren't able to figure out the financing. So I think realistically, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But I think in terms of messaging, it's something that's that's grow, gaining momentum. Yeah, we'll ask Republicans about the uh, about messaging on 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 health care. They they had a great message and then they couldn't turn it into anything. Um, well, meanwhile, lest anyone having forgotten, there are still more than 2,000 kids who've been separated from their parents at the U.S.-Mexican border who are in the custody of the HHS Office of Re- Refugee Resettlement. HHS Secretary Alex Azar testified at the Senate Finance Committee on Tuesday ostensibly about drug prices. Um, but Democrats and Republicans wanted to know how he planned to reunite those children with their parents. Um, what do we know about how this is going, Alice? You've been looking at this. Yes. Well, I think that... So many moving parts on this. One, a huge ruling national injunction out of a California federal court this week ordering the government to reunite all children with their parents within 30 days and children under five years old within 14 days and put the parents and children in phone contact within 10 days. They claim that they can all all already be in phone contact, but attorneys who are working with the locked up parents say that it's not the case in practice that many have not spoken to their children at all, have no idea where they are, are completely distraught. Um, and so it's not yet known if the government is going to try to appeal that ruling. Although I was in federal court yesterday on a different case challenging uh, the family separations and the government uh, lawyer in that case said, well, I can't speak to whether there's going to be an appeal or not because that's someone else's decision. But I will say that an appeal will likely take a long time. And in the meantime, I assume they'll work towards compliance, although it's been such a mess and so disorganized. And there's just been these scathing reports about how it's been handled. It's People are very skeptical that even making a sincere effort, whether the government can realistically reunite all these um, parents and children within 30 days. They say they've already reunited um, more than 500, although um, when pressed by reporters, uh, they confirmed that those 500 children were never transferred over into the HHS system. They remained within the DHS system. And so these children that have been moved into the HHS system, which was originally set up for uh, children who arrived unaccompanied, that the government has the obligation to care for and find them sponsors. Now they're in this entirely new role of housing all of these children that the government has decided to separate from their parents. And in the meantime, the, the Office of Refugee Resettlement at HHS, even before this, was the subject of a lot of news coverage, I guess, because their their leader is um, not necessarily, does not have experience in this realm. <laughs> That's true. Scott Lloyd is the uh, 
person in charge of this, and he has been um, criticized by immigration groups for a variety of things. In fact, going back to the abortion issue, he was the person who decided that the 17-year-old immigrant who crossed Who the was border, an unaccompanied minor. Who was an unaccompanied, yes, um, could not get an abortion. Um, so I think that, you know, Secretary Azar told the Senate Finance Committee on Tuesday, oh, I can locate people within seconds, children within seconds. Uh, Ron Wyden, who's the top Democrat on that committee, said, mm, not so sure about that. You're painting a rosy picture. And I think that there are lots of logistical challenges. I think um, the fact that they've asked for the Defense Department to help them find spaces for 12,000 migrants in the next few months is kind of interesting and that if DOD doesn't have that space, then they want to build tent cities for people, uh, three three tent compounds with um, people across the nation. I, I think it's just, you know, and we saw this earlier in 2014 with Sylvia Matthews when there were so many unaccompanied children Minus, coming yeah. across the, right. the border. That was a challenge and that was a much smaller problem than what we're seeing now. So I think that this is going to be very, very challenging. Um, right now, as we speak, the um, Senate Health, Education, and Labor Appropriations Committee is meeting, and we'll see if there are there is any discussion there about this. Um, the chairman of that of the subcommittee that handles this, Roy Blunt of of Missouri, says that he hasn't been asked by the administration for any additional money for this. So we'll see exactly how this plays out. Um, we've seen in other markups, other committee discussions of other bills that the Democrats keep bringing up this issue. Uh, yesterday, there was a, a markup on something that was unrelated, a committee vote on a, a bill related to emergency preparedness. And there was a big drama in that discussion because the Democrats were preparing amendments. So the Republicans recessed, quickly scrambled and wrote their own amendment that Marsha Blackburn put forward um, that would require at least weekly reporting on statistics and some sort of reunification strategy going forward. So it's interesting the Republicans don't want to be defending the administration in terms of this position on separating families. But we don't see any outlet for Congress to take any action. I mean, they haven't been able to move forward on immigration bills more broadly. They haven't really moved forward on other pieces of legislation related to family separation. So we'll see what happens. Also this week, um, their inspector general at HHS has opened a report um, into the well-being of the children in their care and also what their plan is for the Yeah, there have been an awful lot of reports yeah. of, of not great conditions in some of these facilities. Yeah, including really horrific, I mean, not, not just, you know, a confusion, but just ab- abuse and unsafe conditions. Um, so uh, there's going to be an IG report and a GAO report. We're both opened this week. So we've learned over the past few decades a lot about the science of stress. And we've learned about um, we have new technology that we didn't have three decades ago with MRIs and, and functional MRIs that allowed us to see blood flow to the brain and so forth. And we know so much more about the impact of childhood stress on people even decades later And the fact that trauma can cause you to have depression or heart problems and all sorts of health problems later in life. And that one of the things that is a protective barrier to this for children who are going through trauma is being with a a parent or another adult who can be a protection for them. And that makes a big difference in the outcomes. And so I just think it's pretty interesting that the Department of Health and Human Services 
which is in charge of ensuring welfare, is in charge of of taking care of these children who are being separated from their parents at this particular time. And and um, just again, Azar's testimony that it, it's incredibly easy to, um, you know, put these children and parents in contact. I, I mean, lawyers have said that. One, some of these children are so young, they're pre-verbal. How are they even supposed to, or even the ones who can speak, they don't know their parents' full name, possibly. Um, they don't have their, their a number memorized for, for a uh, relative, like some of the older children um, have been reported. And um, also, a lot of the folks that are coming, uh, don't they don't speak English or Spanish. They speak an indigenous language, and there's been a huge scramble to find interpreters for those people. And so there are just people who are trapped in the system, completely confused and isolated and distraught. And so just waiting for courts or some sort of process to to intervene. Oh, a story that will continue. Um, we have one state story this week. Uh, Margo, you and one of your colleagues have a provocative story out of California, of all places, trying to ban cities from imposing soda taxes. California, really? It's so wild. So I guess a a bit of a step back, which is the soda industry had a really great playbook for fighting soda taxes. This was sort of a little bit of a pipe dream of uh, public health crusaders around the country for years. They would propose a soda tax and the soda industry would, you know, spend a lot of money, uh, hook up with local businesses, uh, change public opinion and kind of squash it. And this happened, I think, about 40 times. So they just weren't, you know, it was expensive for them, but it wasn't that worrisome for them. And then all of a sudden the tide turned. Um, In 2014, Berkeley passed the first soda tax, and they said, you know, and I think rightly so, well, Berkeley's a really liberal place. It's sort of the exception that proves the rule. Of course, they could do it in Berkeley. They're not going to be able to do it anywhere else. And then all of a sudden, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Oakland, California, Boulder, Colorado, uh, Cook County, Illinois, uh, we started to see soda taxes uh, prevailing around the country in kind of large cities, large, some of them liberal, some of them less liberal. But um, and so what it looks like has happened is that the soda industry is trying a new tactic, and they're borrowing a tactic that actually the tobacco industry used in the 1980s and that we see a lot of other business interests use, which is to go to the state legislature and say, we want to pass a law that preempts any municipality from passing this kind of regulation. So in the case of tobacco, it was no local tobacco taxes. The state is going to be the only place that's allowed to impose taxes on tobacco. In the case of soda taxes, basically the same thing. And they've passed these laws in two states already, Michigan and Arizona, and there are live uh, efforts to try to pass them either through voter referendums or through the state legislatures in a number of other states. And now we come to California, where one of the most liberal states, obviously, and also the state where the most municipalities have already established these taxes. So it is a place where there is an interest in this public policy. There's some momentum. And a lot of them have been achieved by voter referenda. So uh, the public seems to be in favor of this policy in a lot of parts of California. And what happened is that the soda industry hooked up with the California Business Roundtable and gathered more than a million signatures on a voter referendum that would have raised the threshold for any local tax increase from a simple majority to a two-thirds majority. And this voter referendum completely freaked out everyone in California politics because it's really hard to pass a tax increase if you need a two-thirds majority. And there was a fear that it could really cripple the functioning of local governments and their ability to raise money for police and fire and other crucial services. Schools. There's always always valid measures for school. This goes back to Prop 13. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
and you know, a college paper. And California that. has experience with these yeah, kind of restrictive, I, yeah, tax. And so, what happened is that the business community, including the soda industry, went to the legislature and said, "Why don't we make a deal? If you will agree to pass this preemption law that will bar municipalities from passing any taxes on foods or beverages." We will not take this voter referendum to the voters. <laughs> and it looks like that deal is going to go through. There are a lot of people at the table, you know, largely Democrats. The leadership of the California legislature is Democratic. The governor has so far been noncommittal, but uh, he was seen having dinner with the executives of the major beverage industries this week. He claims they were not talking about this particular issue, but I wonder what they were talking about. <laughs> and because of the deadline for these voter referenda, they are going to vote on this today, Thursday, and the governor is potentially going to sign it today, Thursday. And if it does not pass and it does not get signed into law, then we're going to have this much bigger fight about uh, taxing authority throughout California in the next election. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to leave the rest of this because we're running out of time. It is time for our extra credit segment. That is usually where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. But this week, in honor of our first anniversary, we're going to do something a little bit different. Our very first podcast, which dropped on June 29th, 2017, came in the midst of the Senate's consideration of the ACA repeal and replace bill that was, to paraphrase former Vice President Joe Biden, kind of a big deal, even though the bill didn't actually pass. So I'm going to go around the table and ask each of you what you think the biggest health story has been in our first year. Um, Alice, why don't you go first? Well, as Rebecca mentioned, we could get a decision on the Kentucky Medicaid work requirements and other waiver provisions uh, any minute, probably while we're recording this, it'll <laughs> yes, happen. We'll, t- we'll, we'll talk about this <laughs> next week. Um, but uh, I think that is a moment in this journey we've been on for more than a year that uh, around Medicaid and during Congress's months of attempting to repeal the Affordable Care Act, there was just this groundswell of activism specifically around Medicaid. And I think that really changed people's perception of what the program is and who it's for and who deserves affordable uh, or free health care. And, you know, you had folks... um, Uh, in wheelchairs, blocking the halls of Congress, very dramatic visuals. And I think now the effort you're seeing from the Trump administration to allow states to chip away at who can be a part of Medicaid, in their rhetoric, you're really seeing them trying to draw these lines between the deserving and the undeserving. It's very, very clear in their rhetoric. They keep talking about, oh, well, Medicaid was supposed to be for the, you know, old people and pregnant moms, old people, pregnant moms, uh, people with disabilities, children, young children and uh, and the abysmally poor, not sort of uh, the working poor, not the working poor, or by and large, or they can't work poor. Um, And so they keep talking about able-bodied, which Margot has explained very well is not a term that has a scientific definition. It is a very sort of political and moral, you know, uh, view on that. And so I think that this fight is going to play out going forward. And we're we're have to see if the groundswell of opposition to the repeal was about the possibility that the Medicaid expansion could be abolished altogether at once. It's harder, this sort of whack-a-mole we're seeing, where a, a state will try to get a waiver, it'll try to get approved, it'll be challenged in court. It's hard to rally people around, you know, 20 of those battles going on at once when it's not clear what exactly will um 
the impact will be and on whom. It's not as clear an enemy to to mobilize against, but we'll see if it becomes one. So, yeah, yeah, I think that the biggest surprise to me about Medicaid was how popular it turned out to be in public opinion polls. It's always been sort of Medicare was the the third rail of politics, but now it's Medicare and Medicaid. Um, Margo. So I wanted to talk about the other big part of Obamacare that has somehow managed to endure uh, through this turbulent time, which is the marketplaces that the law set up. And I think to many of us, we have felt like we've been on death watch for the last few years. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? Is the website going to work? Are people going to buy this thing? Do the insurers want to play? There are all these lawsuits. There's policy changes. And to me, um, I have been consistently surprised by the resilience of these markets, by the kind of durability of the policy structure. And I don't say this to discount in any way the real problems that they have. I think the coverage is tending to be narrower than people had hoped. So you can't always see the doctor or the hospital that you want to go to. The prices, especially for people who don't have subsidies, have gotten very high in some places. And the choice, the sort of promised choice that you would have these markets that would be robust and you could pick the insurer that was really right for you, uh, has not materialized in a lot of places where there are a lot of parts of the country where you really just have one insurer. But you know, death spiral, death spiral, death spiral was on the front pages of newspapers for years. There has not been a death spiral despite a lot of adversity. Every single part of the country has an insurer that is offering coverage. And we're seeing insurers come back this year. We're seeing insurers come back this year. I do think that the year ahead holds some new challenges for these markets. And, you know, uh, we can't be absolutely sure that they will endure. But my sort of my prior about how uh, long they're going to kind of hang in there has has really shifted in the last year. I think if we had this conversation a year ago, I would have said, I don't know if they pull the CSRs, maybe something horrible will happen. All of these things could have happened that could have sort of made the whole thing topple over. And now I feel like my baseline assumption is these markets are pretty stable. They're probably going to work okay or like well enough, especially for subsidized customers. And it's going to take something really big to make them not work. Rebecca. I want to build on what everybody said. And by the way, congratulations, Julie. Thank you. So um, I think I think that Margot's point is an interesting one. And, and perhaps it's related to the subsidies. Perhaps it's related to auto enrollment. There are lots of factors at play, but it is kind of interesting. But a year ago, we didn't necessarily know that we would be in this position. A year ago, we were we had finished the House debate. Um, they voted in March, and then they were, well, they started to vote in March. They stopped the debate. They came back in May, finally did it. The Senate was gearing up. We had all of those votes in the Senate, and John McCain finally did the thumbs down, which was so interesting. I remember him telling colleagues before the vote, watch the show. So he's, he's a bit of a ham. Um, but we didn't necessarily know where we were going. And the CBO had had projected, the Congressional Budget Office had projected that over the next decade, somewhere between 23 million to 32 million fewer people might be insured if if the repeal bill had gone forward and if they had blocked grant and Medicaid. And, and it was quite an interesting time. You never know with health care policy, especially with the 2010 debate and with last year's debate, you never know where you're going to end up. And so I think, you know, all of the late night and middle of the night votes was certainly a big story, and it would have had a huge impact on people if if they had succeeded. Um, sort of a an, a side dynamic of this is I, I find it interesting where we are right now in terms of the administration's relationship with the medical community at this particular moment, because the doctors and the hospitals, everybody lined up against the repeal 
and there was a, a lot of friction and tension over that. I can't remember any time over the past two decades where, for example, the American Medical Association has been at odds with the administration on as many different issues, whether it's immigration um, with the with the travel ban or separation of, of women. Um, the AMA has a slightly different position on gun violence. There are all these different issues in which the medical community is reacting to what the Trump administration has done. And, and the medical community is saying, this is not backed by science. This is not good standards. And so that's just a kind of a side note that it's interesting that we're facing this sort of relationship here between um, medical professionals and the administration officials who are setting policy. Well, my story uh, is one that was kind of flying under the radar until yesterday when Justice Kennedy's retirement brought it back to the to the front burner, and that is the state of women's reproductive rights. Um, most of the attention has been at the federal legislative level on the things that didn't happen in the past year. Congress didn't ban abortions at 20 weeks. It didn't directly defund Planned Parenthood, and it didn't write the Hyde Amendment that bars abortion funding into permanent law, all things that were big priorities. Um but that ignores the long list of things that have been done at the state level and by federal rulemaking. The latter includes reinstatement of the ban on international family planning groups that get U.S. money, uh, even mentioning abortion, and the recent proposed rule that would effectively kick Planned Parenthood out of the U.S. family planning program by requiring that they physically separate their abortion-providing facilities from their other service facilities, as well as bar abortion referrals. Um, at the state level, Iowa has passed a ban banning abortions as early as six weeks, Arkansas has banned medication abortions. Texas and other states are trying to ban the most common method of second trimester abortion. Any one of those cases, assuming it gets to the Supreme Court, could be used to overturn Roe. So while people were looking elsewhere, abortion is already being restricted in some pretty severe ways, as we already discussed. Obviously, as we go forward, there will be more to this story in the coming year. So that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Rebecca Adams, D.C. At Sanger Katz. At Alice Holstein. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.